If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to letter of 1 John. We are continuing on this morning in this series that we began a few weeks ago that Pastor Cosby has been leading us through, and we are picking up where we left off last Lord's Day. We're looking at 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, and we're going to read down to verse 11 this morning. And just by way of introduction and reminder, John is writing this. It might have been uh, sermons that he preached that have now been put in a letter form and are meant for distribution to many Christians and many Christian churches. And uh, he is dealing with false teaching that was plaguing the church. That seems to be a very common thing in the New Testament. Um, I think every book in the New Testament is dealing with false teaching that's plaguing the church in some way, shape, or form. And this is a peculiar form of false teaching, as Pastor Cosby has said, that's called Gnosticism. There was a group of people that were going around saying that they had a special uh, spiritual, mystical knowledge of God, and that they were essentially boasting that they were better than professing Christians, and that they were the ones that really knew God. They rejected the true humanity of Jesus because they believed that the material world was entirely evil. And so they lived sinful lifestyles because they didn't believe that it mattered what you did in the body. And so that's some of the background that goes into what John is dealing with. And this morning we are transitioning a bit from where we've been um, to look at verses 3 through 11. And so if you are able, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. We will read together 1 John 2, 3 through 11. And the apostle now writes, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way as he walked. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is not is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. You may be seated. Well, the Protestant Reformation was a movement of doctrinal rediscovery. And among the many doctrines that were rediscovered and those teachings that find a unique place in the Reformed tradition um, is the doctrine of assurance of salvation. Uh, We often think of justification by faith alone, and rightly so, that John Calvin and Martin Luther and the magisterial reformers were rediscovering the gospel and the heart of the gospel, and they were certainly doing that. And yet it quickly became evident that interrelated to that was the doctrine of assurance of salvation. The reformers taught very clearly that God's word holds forth for believers uh, the objective assurance of faith, um, that there can be a true and a real and a growing and full assurance, even a subjective experience of assurance of salvation that the Roman Catholic Church denied. So important is this subject that the Roman Catholic 
um, theologian Bellarmine, who happened to be the theologian to the Pope at the time and the leader of the Counter-Reformation, said that the most pernicious doctrine in Protestantism was the doctrine not of justification by faith alone, but of assurance of salvation. Because he said that if you teach people they can be assured that they have eternal life, they will live wicked lifestyles. And so you find the teaching of assurance uh, throughout the writings of the Reformers. And then in the post-Reformation era with the Puritans, uh, you find a very concentrated focus. John Owen wrote a massive volume on assurance of salvation on Psalm 130. The Westminster Confession of Faith, our own doctrinal standards, have much to say about the contours and the nuances because these men were spiritual doctors of the soul. They were spiritual apothecaries. They knew that there were intricacies in the soul. They knew that believers struggle with their sin. They struggle with wondering whether they're hypocrites or whether they're not. They understood that, that assurance can wax and wane. They knew that there can be false assurance and true assurance. They knew that there could be weak assurance and strong assurance. They knew that there could be different seasons in believers' lives where at different times they experienced a greater measure of assurance. Um, And so important was this subject that many of the copies of the Westminster Confession of Faith have uh, appended to them a little book by David Dixon and John Durham called The Sum of Saving Knowledge. And it was written to help believers who struggle with assurance come to a settled place where they know that they have a saving interest in Jesus Christ. One writer has said about assurance that those who have little of it want more, those who have some want more, and those who have much want more. I think that's a helpful statement. And John is here writing in this section that we're looking at. He is writing to a group of beleaguered uh, Christians who have had their faith shaken, who have been told that they don't really know God, that instead this, this a mystical group of Gnostics have claimed that they have this superior knowledge of God, and, and they are claiming to know him apart from Jesus Christ, as it were, and that they understand all the mysteries of God and that they've attained some great level of knowledge. That's where the word Gnostic comes from. The word knowledge comes from. And so you'll notice that as we go through John's epistle, he is constantly picking up on that phrase, we know, we know, we know, in refuting the error of the Gnostics. And notice here that as he introduces this section, he will do that in verse 3. He'll say, and by this we know that we have come to know him. By this we know that we have come to know him. Um, John is going to do two things in the passage that we're looking at this morning. He's first going to give us the vertical mark of knowing God, the vertical mark, and then he's going to give us the horizontal mark of knowing God. And, And this is one crucial piece to assurance of salvation. It's not the totality. Um, the old theologians would sometimes talk about the three-legged stool of assurance, This is just one piece of that assurance that the Holy Spirit working in us, assuring us of our adoption is another piece. And the promises of God that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection, the certainty of those promises is the third piece. This is one piece and it's an important piece. And notice that as John is now helping his readers along to know that they have eternal life, he says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep 
his commandments. Now, this is a difficult portion of scripture on many levels. It's difficult because it could be easily misconstrued, and a, a person with a legal spirit could take it and could internally think, God will accept me if I obey enough. And that's not what it's teaching in any way, shape, or form whatsoever. In fact, we have just seen in the previous sections that, that John is nuancing all of those arguments. And, and he goes from saying, if somebody says that he, he doesn't sin, he's a liar and he makes God a liar. But, but if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, but I write these things so that you don't sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And even before that, he said, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin, and we have fellowship with one another. And so everything that John has said is that the Lord Jesus Christ, in his person and in his sacrifice of himself on the cross, is the basis and foundation of our acceptance with God and our continuance in the Christian life. Um, This is why we love to sing hymns like, He Will Hold Me Fast. It's good and right that we do that. Um, We love to meditate on those words of the Lord Jesus in John 6, where he says, All that the Father has given me will come to me, and the one that comes to me I will no wise cast out. Um, I will keep him. I will raise him up on the last day. Our faith is built on that truth. And it's built on the fact that God has not only forgiven the sins of his people, but he's renewing them, and he is making them a people that love his commandments and want to obey him. And that, that becomes a mark that we belong to him. Um, you know, it, it, it's easy to look at the scriptures and to sort of cherry pick which ones we like. And, and if you're anything like me, you love all the passages that talk about the guilt of your sin being taken away because you've got a lot of guilt. And, and, and we love justification by faith alone, and we should love justification by faith alone. Um, and we should return there often in our minds and hearts. And yet... And yet, there are two sides to the gospel promises and to the saving work of Christ. John has given us that in chapter 1. He said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We love that, and we should. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the other side. And oftentimes, we don't think about that enough. We don't pray enough, Lord, cleanse me. Don't just forgive me. Cleanse me of this sin. Think about what David said when he confessed his sin in Psalm 51. He said, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, create in me a clean heart. He's not just praying for the guilt of the bloodshed to be taken away. He's praying for that. He's praying for renewal. And that was the great promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah when God is promising what he's going to do in the new and the better covenant. And he says, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. I will write my laws in their heart and put them in their minds. I will be their God and they will be my people. So true believers are those because they have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, love the commandments of God and want to obey him. We know that we don't do that perfectly. That's why John has said, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Um, 
But there is a real and a sincere desire to obey the Lord out of love to him because of what he's done for us in redeeming us through Christ. You know, these are hard passages. Um, John will go on here in verse 4 and say, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. He, he's exposing hypocrisy. Um, now, when he says his commandments, we can think of that, first of all, as broadly all the commandments of God, because he means all of them, everything that's commanded in Scripture. We could think of them more narrowly as the Ten Commandments. We can think of all that the Lord Jesus commanded in the Gospels. We can think of all the imperatives, the commands in the New Testament epistles, and it includes all of that. Or we can just reduce it down to this, that it's the Word of God that we're being called to love and to desire to obey God as he has revealed himself and his will and his word. Um, And that's important because the Gnostics that John's battling, they were saying, we have this knowledge of God. We're spiritual people. We understand these mysteries you don't understand. We really know God while living hellishly in the flesh. And, And importantly, while saying we don't need a revelation of God, they rejected the word. That's, that's the background. And John is saying, no, we know that we know him if we keep his word. It, right? Jesus said, you, are, you will know that you're my disciples if you abide in my word. John 8, 31. If you abide in my word. If you remain in it. If you, if you apply yourself to it. If you keep it and treasure it up in your heart like David said. Um. This, this is searching when we ask ourselves, am I someone who wants to obey the Lord in everything? Because we know our hearts. I was talking to my best friend last night who happens to be a pastor in Asheville, North Carolina, and he said, you know, I said, this is, this is, these are cutting passages, and they're meant to. And he said, yeah, I don't like First John. He loves First John. I said, yeah, I don't either. He said, I said, It's also, it cuts like James. He goes, yeah, I don't like James either. (laughs) I said, yeah, I mean, but we need these passages. We need 1 John and James. We need to be called to ask myself, am I someone who wants to obey the Lord fully? Not, we're never going to do it perfectly in this life, but fully and consistently. Um, and, And if we are, and if you can say, yes, I do desire to obey the Lord. I do want to put sin to death. Then John says that's a marker that you know the Lord because you're in a relationship with the Lord, because you've been redeemed by Christ. I mean, these commands include coming to Christ and embracing Christ. They're all the commandments of God. Um, Notice John says, whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. You see, it's the love of God that's at the basis of this. It's not... Our love for God. John's going to make that clear elsewhere. He's going to say not that we loved him, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God is perfected. That, that God has manifested his love in such a way that he creates a people that love him and desire to glorify him and obey him. When we fail, as I've noted, we go back to him. 
I had a professor in seminary who used to say, we go back to the cross to go forward in holiness. We go back to Christ crucified for pardon and power. So when we fail, we go back to the advocate. You know, you know why Jesus is a perfect advocate? Because he's never lost a case. Jesus Christ the righteous has never lost a case in pleading for his people on the basis of what he's done. And that's also the guarantee that he will renew, cleanse, restore, and give his people a desire to pursue all that has been commanded. Now, that's the vertical mark. Uh, Secondly, I want us to consider the horizontal mark of knowing God. And from verses 7 through 11, you're going to notice that John is now um, continuing on, in a sense, with what he's just said. But he is now transitioning, and he is pushing out to the, to the horizontal plane of fellowship between believers. And, and, and in one sense, I'll say this at the outset here of the second point, that, that um, these are a picture of the two tables of the law. Love to God, love to neighbor. So he's dealt with love to God, and now he's going to deal with love to neighbor. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is what's supposed to motivate us in Christian obedience and service, um, gratitude to God for what he's done, and uh, a reception of his love for us in Jesus Christ. But now notice, John says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the, the, from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment. And you're like, what? It's an old commandment. It's not a new commandment. The old commandment is a new commandment. It's very confusing. What is John saying? Well, we read earlier today. We read out of John 13 where, where uh, the Lord Jesus, when he's in the upper room, and remember, John is there. The one writing this is there in the upper room. And, and in that great moment when Jesus is going to exemplify what this commandment looks like, what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself out of Leviticus 19. And he's going to embody it in himself. And he's going to stoop down and he's going to wash the dirty feet of the disciples, even the dirty feet of Judas, who he knows is going to betray him. And he's going to, he's going to, he's going to show forth in a parable what he's going to do on the cross for the 11 and for all the Father has given him in washing our filthy souls with his blood. He's going he's to prefigure that in the foot washing. And, and he's going to show what it means to love your neighbor in a way nobody has ever shown. I mean, this is God in the flesh. Um, somebody here reminded me this morning of a quote out of a sermon I preached mentioning Spurgeon and Spurgeon talking about God coming down to the dunghill. God coming down to the dunghill. That's, that's, that's what this world is. That's what we are. And, and he comes and he loves us. And he lays down his life for us. And then in, in the same moment that he does that for his disciples, he turns around and he says, look, I'm going to the Father and you can't come with me. Where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. So, so he, he essentially models for them what that's going to look like and then says, now you go and do likewise. Lay down your lives for one another. Go, go to the, the farthest extent you can in loving the brethren. By this, the world will know that you're my disciples. It's a mark. It's an evidence. It's interesting. 
I've always found it humorous that Peter, he's there, and, and Jesus says to him, I'm going away, and you can't come with me. And then he gives him the new commandment. And then Peter's like, Lord, why can't I come with you? He totally missed what Jesus just did. Jesus said, I'm going somewhere you can't come, but what I want for you while you're here is to walk in love and to show forth that you're my disciples. And Peter doesn't want to hear that. He wants, Lord, why can't I go with you? And oftentimes we don't want to hear that. It's very easy to think you're loving people when you're just really liking people you like to hang out with. I think I mentioned this quote to you once, but years ago somebody said on Twitter, um, this is one of the only good things ever put on Twitter, church is not just you and 20 of your best friends. Praise God. Because that's what we want it to be in the flesh. And, and here the command is to love all the believers, difficult believers, believers that have hurt you, especially believers that have hurt you, maybe. Because this has no legs to it if it's just people that are really nice to you and that are easy to like and love. I'm writing you no new commandment, he says. The old commandment is the word you've heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing you, which is true in him and in you. It's true in Christ. And if we're united to him, it's true in us because there is a family likeness that happens. If you're, if you're united to Jesus Christ, then you will in some way, shape, or form be looking like him to some degree. Right? The fruit of the Spirit is his fruit. He says, my love, my joy, my peace I give you. So that if I'm lacking the fruit of the Spirit entirely, it means that I don't know him. That's what that means. If I, if I don't have the fruit of the Spirit in my life, I don't know him. That's why this is a mark. But, but if we know him, then it's true in him and in us. And then notice what John says, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Well, what does he mean there? Well, I think very simply he means that of all the people on the face of the earth, the only person that can do this is someone who is truly savingly united to Jesus because they live in the kingdom of God's love, in the kingdom of light. It's another world. It's a new world of grace. It's a world of redemption. And yet we live at the same time in this dark world, this passing world, and no one in this world can do that. Sinclair Ferguson puts this so well. well. He says, this dark world cannot imitate that world, the world of light, because this world is light and that world is darkness. This is why this is a mark that you belong to him and know him because only those who know him can love like him. My dad used to say to me when I was a young boy, and I think he's very right, he said, you know, Nick, the problem in theologically robust reform circles is that we oftentimes know so much and love so little. We know so much and we love so little. I think that's true. I feel it in my own soul. And, and this is a call for us to, to, to search our own hearts. Notice John says, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. It's a, it's a matter of the heart, isn't it? 
Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, we could very easily look at this and we could say, yeah, you know, I love, I love Christians and, and yet have a heart full of malice toward some Christians, which means we don't love God's people. Um, we, we, can even, we can even write off, we can write off um, our responsibility to examine our hearts and to deal with any bitterness or malice toward a brother or sister under the name of uh, righteous zeal, truth. Um, you, you, we're very sophisticated. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately evil. Who can know it? Eric Alexander puts it this way, a loveless spirit a malicious attitude, however disguised and dressed up in evangelical clothes. A harbored spirit of ill will is not just an amiable weakness. It is a sign of darkness. And it's so important that by God's grace, we let him deal with it. No matter how disguised or dressed up in evangelical clothes, a, a spirit of ill will is not just an amiable weakness, it is a sign of darkness. The writer of Hebrews says, a root of bitterness springing up defiles many. Now, I told you it was a hard passage, and it's good that we deal with these. I want to give you two, two thoughts as we look at this. The first is that when we consider this, the right response, and I want, to, I want to exhort you to do this, is to ask, am I someone who really wants to obey the Lord in everything that he's commanded? And if you're a true believer, you'll be able to say, yes, I do want to obey the Lord in everything that he commands, even though I know I fail often. But, but I am going to him for cleansing. I'm going to him for restoration, for purity, for holiness, for growth in grace. That's, that's what this is meant to do. It's meant for us to, to say, if, if I can look in and I can say, yes, I want to obey the Lord. I want to put sin to death. I want to walk uprightly. I want to abide in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work. That is a sign that we know him. That is fruit that we know him. As we do that and we, and we see the many ways that we fail, um, the many ways we fall short. We obey him, and this is beautiful. We, we keep his commandments by going back to him and confessing our sins and asking him to cleanse us. That is obeying his command. That's part of, that's part of saying, yes, I sincerely know him because I hate my sin and I am going to him crying out for forgiveness and cleansing. That is a, that's a mark of assurance. Secondly, I want us to ask ourselves the question this morning, when I think about other professing believers in other ecclesiastical fellowships, and, and maybe I'll ask you to consider a professing believer who's hurt you in some way. Are you harboring a spirit of ill will and bitterness and malice? And if you are, I want to exhort you this morning to do the same thing I just said. You go back to the Lord Jesus, you confess that sin, and you pray that he'll heal your heart and deal with it. I'll leave you with an encouraging note. How beautiful, how beautiful a church would be if it had 
those who are abiding in the Lord Jesus, earnestly striving to obey him, not from a legal spirit, out of love, and earnestly desiring to love every other believer in the body. How beautiful would that be? The world hasn't ever seen anything like that, except if it sees it in the Christian church. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we fail miserably. In our Christian life, we acknowledge, Lord, our many um, acts of disobedience this morning and rebellion and waywardness. And yet, oh God, we cry out with the Apostle Paul that we long to do those things that we often don't do. And um, we do pray that you would hasten our sanctification. We pray that you would make us a people that desire to obey everything that you have commanded us in your word, that you would make us a people that um, abide in your word, a people who are quick to confess sin and turn from it and do what is pleasing in your sight. Lord, would you please work in us to that end? We also pray this morning that you would work in us that we would be a people that are eager to love the brethren as you, Lord Jesus, have loved us, that you would teach us to go to that degree in even laying down our lives for one another. And so, Lord, have mercy on us and work these things in us. And we pray that you would help us to model these things, both for our own assurance and also for your glory and honor and for a faithful witness to Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.